And I'm um, actually proudly modeling one of the scarves. Um, great, I'm sorry, I have to give it back. I guess I could buy it. I should have, probably. <laughs> um, hi, Kristen. The, um, and, and again, the, every year we adopt an organization that's providing services in resource-limited settings, and uh, absolutely every penny of, uh, of what is raised across the counter here goes back right to the organization, uh, and we help uh, by staffing it as well, so it's a great, um, great cause. We have three, uh, uh, I think, uh, spectacular talks in the next uh, section of the program, too. Um, we'll cover uh, sort of where we are with Hep C, which is moving very quickly. Um, Chuck Hicks will then talk about um, uh, new developments in uh, antiretroviral therapy, and the final speaker this morning will be Christine Ritchie, uh, who will uh, address the really complicated challenges of uh, HIV and aging. So we'll start, and we'll, uh, we're a little bit uh, behind, but we'll catch that up at lunchtime, and we'll start with Stuart Ray. Stuart is a professor at Hopkins, and uh, will address uh, HCV co-infection. Don't just sit and stand there while the landscape is looking better or something like that. Stuart. Don't put that scarf back. I'll buy it this all right, well, thank you. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation and uh, for the great hospitality. Chicago's a great city to visit. So uh, we're going to, oh, these are my disclosures, uh, pretty simple. Um, so I'm hoping to impart uh, some appreciation of the importance of hepatitis C liver disease, risk factors for disease progression, and our current options and some of the uh, new investigational uh, things that are on the horizon. And I uh, appreciate that this is a huge topic, and all we'll do is sort of skim the surface. There will be uh, an intensive workshop that some of you will be participating in tomorrow, and it'll be a, a chance to talk about cases in detail, but I'll just touch on a couple here. So we have a 47-year-old man uh, who has uh, high CE4 counts, well-suppressed HIV on uh, Truvada, Adizanavir, boosted with Atonavir. He's got hepatitis C genotype 1B, uh, a usual viral level, 6 million, uh, and well-compensated cirrhosis. He, in 2010, he had a null response to pegylated interferon ribavirin. And the question is, what do you want to do? Treat now with uh, peg-riba-telaprevir, treat now with peg-riba-bisepravir, or wait for a more potent DAA combination? Let's see what you'd like to do at this point. And so uh, it's pretty evenly split. So we'll see how people look at this at the end of this talk. I think we have another case. A uh, couple variables change. So a 60-year-old man with HIV, uh, good CD4 count, HIV well suppressed for six years on a back of 3TC efavirenz. Uh, he has a hep C genotype 3, uh, HCDRNA level, 2.5 million, well compensated cirrhosis. And so the question is, do you want to treat now with Pegriba, you want to treat now with Pegriba tilaprevir, uh, or wait for a more potent DAA combination. So, 
let's see where people are with this. So uh, there's an uh, interest in treating with telaprevir, and again, we'll see uh, whether that's different at the end of this talk. You'll note that the, decision, the choices here were a little different because of considerations of drug interactions, and I just want to point out that uh, Jen Kaiser will be talking about those this afternoon. I won't focus on those. So uh, I, it may be obvious to you, but about six years ago, uh, the lines for mortality from hepatitis C and HIV crossed. Um, and I would argue that this underrepresents the difference that hep C deaths are largely uncounted. Many patients who die at Hopkins with hep C-related liver disease uh, do not mention hep C on the death certificate because people don't think of that. They just see someone dying of bacterial sepsis with vibrio vulnificus, and they just say, and not realize that that doesn't happen without uh, cirrhosis. So I think the problem of hepatitis C is probably underappreciated, and certainly uh, the incidence is hard to estimate. Now this slide summarizes a lot of information that's very important. Uh, one, that acute infection is followed by cl spontaneous clearance in about a third of people who get infected. And so we have a fair number of people who come to our hep C clinic who have antibody positive, RNA negative uh, testing status, and so those people don't have hepatitis C. But in those with chronic infection who are RNA positive, uh, for one thing, uh, 80 to 90 percent have a viral level of between, uh, of one million plus or minus one log. So the viral levels are high. But despite that, people tend to be stable with their hep C infection, uh, with only 5 to 20 percent going on to develop cirrhosis in 20 to 25 years in prospective cohorts. Now, this Part of the pathogenesis is a little different. Actually, both of these steps are a little different in people with HIV. So the chronicity rates are probably much higher when people get HIV first and then get exposed to hepatitis C. That's pretty unusual in uh, people with injected drug use, but in gay men, uh, it's not that unusual to get HIV first. In the people who have chronic infection, the progression rate to cirrhosis is probably more rapid in people with HIV. Uh, alcohol is another major risk factor, and so it's important to recognize that cirrhosis may be a bigger problem in people with HIV and hep C co-infection than in other groups. And then the decompensation rate uh, is uh, not high, 7% per year overall, uh, either developing uh, end-stage liver disease uh, or uh, liver cancer. Uh, but this number uh, is, is far from zero and may be accelerated in people with HIV as well. And so how do we identify people at risk? Because with many people doing uh, pretty well with chronic hep C infection, we need to identify the people who most need treatment. And the standard approach has been liver biopsy. And the problem is many of our patients really don't want to undergo liver biopsy. Or even if they undergo it once, they're really not enthusiastic about doing it often. And there's some good evidence that with progression rates being rapid, uh, the biopsy should be done every three to four years in people with HIV. And that's both expensive and uncomfortable for patients. And fortunately, uh, there are some other options. So one, uh, which I uh, list at the bottom of the slide, is serum markers. So the Fibrosure, uh, based on its naming here in the US, uh, but a combination of fibrosis markers in the blood, or the APRI, but basically the ratio of AST to platelet count, are uh, relatively non-invasive, simple tests that can be done. Uh, but they're imperfect. Um, all of these are imperfect, really. Uh, a news item is that the FibroScan, transient elastography, was approved by the FDA uh, about two weeks ago. And uh, we can't order it yet, at, at least not in Maryland, because we don't have CPT code. Uh, but when those become available, then uh, it will be possible to get FibroScans done. This is basically an ultrasound that measures liver stiffness. Uh, the readout is in kilopascals. Uh, it's 
basically painless, you take 10 to 15 measurements and if they're very consistent, then you get a readout on how much, uh, how much stiffness there is in the liver and it correlates very well with uh, cirrhosis. So this is a, an exciting possibility for identifying people who are at most at risk of disease progression and treating those. Now where are we now? Well, uh, so the shorthand I, I use uh, in many of these slides is PR for pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So pegriva plus either bocetravir or tilaprevir uh, has been one option uh, since May of 2011. Uh, now drug interactions are important and again Jen Kaiser is going to talk about those but they are surmountable and uh, based on uh, various HIV regimens we can use bocetravir, uh, tilaprevir. Um, and then uh, one of the interesting uh, items from uh, CROI this year was that there is an interaction uh, with ribavirin and tilaprevir. And what, what was found was that anemia was significantly worse with tilaprevir, and that was recognized fairly early on. Uh, the news was that the uh, levels of ribavirin and its uh, metabolites that are active are substantially higher in people who receive tilaprevir. And uh, this may be due to uh, the fat meal that uh, people need to take with tilaprevir because the uh, AUC for the ribavirin and metabolites uh, goes up about two-thirds in people who take a fatty meal uh, with that dose. Uh, that may explain some of this, but the important message is that we can dose reduce ribavirin, as the guidelines uh, suggest, aggressively without loss of uh, efficacy of the regimen. So uh, we need to be, rec we need to recognize anemia as a big problem and to aggressively dose reduce. The uh, challenge of uh, drug resistance in, in HIV uh, is apparent to you all uh, and you all have heard how diverse HIV is genetically. Uh, this is a phylogenetic tree uh, that we made uh, with hepatitis B, HIV and hepatitis C on the same scale. And I use it to highlight uh, the fact that uh, the genetic diversity of hepatitis C is far greater uh, than for HIV. And in fact, the diversity of genotype 1 is as great as the diversity of HIV worldwide. Um, the other reason for saying this is that you'll hear about genotype with hepatitis C and the words get confusing to HIV treaters because we often say genotype to mean resistance genotype and in hepatitis C we usually say genotype in referring to these phylogenetic groups uh, with genotypes 1, 2, and 3 being the most common in the United States and genotype 1 being the one that's relatively interferon resistant. So this is just sort of a, uh, a phylogenetic uh, map of these viruses. And then here's the geographic map of these viruses uh, showing to you with font size uh, proportional to prevalence uh, that genotype 1 is the most prevalent worldwide. But there are places in the world like Africa where genotype, other genotypes are more prevalent. Uh, so you'll see genotype 5 coming from South Africa exclusively. Uh, genotypes 2, 1, and 4 probably arose in West and Central Africa respectively and genotypes 3 and 6 probably arose in South Asia and Southeast Asia, respectively. Uh, so we're going to see these genotypes and we need to learn about their uh, responsiveness to treatment. The addition of tilaprevir to uh, pegriba uh, is an advance that uh, does have an impact for people with uh, co-infection. And as you can see in this study uh, that Mark Falkowski uh, and others published just a few days ago in the New England Journal, uh, the addition of tilaprevir to pegriba has a substantial impact on response to therapy uh, with a big divergence between these curves and substantial differences in SGR rates. Uh, now toxicities are also substantial and you've heard about those. Uh, we can talk about those some more if you want to hear but it's largely anemia and skin effects. 
Additional studies were done uh, in Europe. Uh, ANRS uh, HC 26 and 27 were reported at Croy. And these were interesting because these were people with prior history of treatment, uh, and many of them were cirrhotic. And so this was looking at the addition of telaprevir or bisepravir to a PEG-RIBA combination. These uh, trials were a little bit unusual because the telapra was used off-label with a lead-in phase, four weeks of uh, PEG-RIBA, and then the addition of telaprevir. Um, and these were complex studies, uh, but meant to allow some comparison between them. The big message from these was that uh, there can be uh, very uh, good response rates in people with prior uh, uh, relapse or null response and in people with cirrhosis. Uh, importantly, they did not include people with both null response and cirrhosis because previous work has already shown that people with a prior null response and uh, cirrhosis have a very poor response to uh, the addition of uh, one of these protease inhibitors to pegylated interferon and ribavirin. So for the patients who already have cirrhosis and have a prior null response, current therapeutic options are not uh, particularly effective, and we need to uh, anticipate better therapies on the horizon. So the horizon. There are a bunch of potential therapeutic targets uh, for uh, treatment of hepatitis C, and I list a bunch of the steps in the life cycle here, uh, but highlight uh, protease cleavages, uh, the NS5B RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, which copies the viral genome, and uh, the lipoprotein assembly step, where the virus uh, particles are assembled on lipoproteins during their export from hepatocytes, uh, potentially linking, by the way, uh, lipid metabolism and hepatitis C, which is an interesting area. But NS5A is uh, critical to this uh, step of viral assembly. And so these three steps, uh, protease cleavage, NS5B, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, and uh, the uh, NS5A are current therapeutic targets in clinical trials. Now, uh, HIV is a tough area with nomenclature, and uh, Dr. Dar has already demonstrated how difficult hepatitis C nomenclature is becoming. Uh, so uh, with, with this, uh, these kinds of glossaries are useful because you'll see trials talking about DS585 and trials talking about lodipasvir, and it turns out they're the same drug. And so keeping track of which ones they are and what class they are uh, is a challenge. The other convention you'll see is people talking about nukes, meaning active site uh, RNA-dependent RNA polymerase uh, inhibitors, and then non-nukes, which would be uh, any of the drugs that target the NS5B RNA-dependent RNA polymerase, but don't target that active site. And there are four uh, sites on the NS5B. Uh, so uh, the complexities in terms of cross-resistance and other things are only going to become manifold. Uh, fortunately, a lot of these are PIs, and so that's a familiar uh, sort of uh, name. Uh, just make sure your patients understand that the protease inhibitors for hepatitis C have no structural relationship to the protease inhibitors for HIV. With that, uh, here are a smattering of phase three trials listed in clinicaltrials.gov. And so you can see that these include combinations of PIs, uh, NS5A inhibitors, non-nukes, uh, nukes, and then uh, ribavirin with or without uh, pegylated interferon ribavirin. Notice pegylated interferon lambda at the bottom right-hand uh, corner there. Uh, that's another drug that is uh, in uh, late trials uh, that's interesting. The other thing to highlight the complexity of all this is feldaprevir, you can see down on the left, uh, where it's really uh, only being used in people with subtype 1D, because uh, as I'll show you later, uh, work in subtype 1A was disappointing. 
With that, uh, as has been mentioned, semeprevir or TMC-435 uh, is uh, a new protease inhibitor, and in the C212 trial, uh, this was added to Pegriba in genotype 1 infected patients, and uh, there were two groups, uh, non-serotic, naive, or prior par, uh, PR relapsers. And I should say that prior Pegriba relapsers are particularly good uh, populations to treat with the new BAAs in combination with Pegriba because they tend to have very high response rates. Uh, whereas the null responders are more challenging, they were included in uh, group B along with uh, partial responders and serotics. The, there were 93 of 106 who were on heart, and the median uh, CD4 count was 561. The ones that were not on heart actually had a median CD4 of uh, 650. Uh, so they were people who were not being treated at this time because of high CD4 counts. And the regimens uh, for, uh, uh, were, were either uh, response-guided therapy with Pegriba for 24 or 48 weeks for group A, and in group B, uh, they received Pegriba for 48 weeks. So we're going to, uh, with the semeprovir. And uh, we're just going to talk about group A because those were the study results that were most uh, mature at the time of the report. The point here being that this was uh, nice response rates uh, for group A, uh, genotype 1 non-serotic individuals uh, with prior treatment failure, suggesting that, uh, or, or naives, uh, suggesting that this uh, treatment can be very effective. And that was well tolerated. So then uh, the other question is genotype clades and this DAA activity. And it's worth saying that with HIV and Hep B, since we're, uh, many of us are experienced with those, uh, DAAs are active against all subtypes. And so we don't generally worry about what clade of virus the patient has. You just treat with the HIV or HPV uh, inhibitors. In contrast with Hep C, it's much more complex. Uh, the current protease inhibitors are primarily active against genotype 1. The NS5A inhibitors are highly variable. Some of them are pangenotypic, and some of them are specific for certain genotypes. NS5B non-nukes are genotype 1 targeted, and NS5B nukes uh, generally have broader activity, but there are some holes in this, as we're going to talk about. So uh, there were the uh, studies of Savasovir are generally uh, named for uh, elements of the atom uh, for convention. And uh, so the fission and neutrino trials uh, looked at people with uh, genotypes 1, 4, 5, and 6, or genotypes 2 and 3. And the thing to note here is that the relatively interferon unresponsive genotypes on the left uh, treated with uh, pegylate interferon, sofosfavir, and ribavirin for 12 weeks had very high uh, sustained uh, biologic response rates. Uh, on the right, you see genotypes 2 and 3, and the picture is a little different. The pegriba alone, without the DAA, is in the middle. But on the right, you see that the SBR12 rates were uh, diminished uh, in the genotype 2 and 3 patients which is a little puzzling. And these were people treated only with uh, sofosfavir and ribavirin. And this highlighted a weakness uh, in this class, or at least in this drug. You'll see at the bottom that the ratio of genotypes 2 to 3 was 1 to 3. So this was mostly genotype 3 infected individuals. And it appears that sofosfavir's activity against genotype 3 is diminished relative to the others. Now, I want to take this as a, for a moment just to say that it may be puzzling that genotype 1A is such a poor responder to many of the drugs relative to 1B, and the genotype 3 would be less responsive than genotype 2. But I want to highlight that in the test tube, the pharma, pharma companies have been using genotype 2 culture system for hepatitis C, the GFH1 strain that they have that they can grow and culture as genotype 2, and that the replicons that they use to test genotype 1 are 1B replicons. There are no very useful 1A replicons. And so these drugs have really been developed 
for gene types 2 and 1B. And so it's not surprising that gene type 3 and gene type 1A would be less responsive. So this is something that needs to be addressed with uh, more combinations. And so uh, here we see a more detailed uh, comparison of gene types 2 and 3. And you can see that the response rate to gene type 3 was uh, pretty limited to Sclerosevere and ribavirin combined, whereas gene type 2 response rates were in the 95 to 100% range. So uh, more complex combinations uh, with multiple drugs, uh, including ribavirin, uh, are looking very promising. And so these, uh, this combination of a PI, an NS5A inhibitor, and a non-NUC inhibitor uh, with ribavirin uh, had very high response rates. And this was interesting as we break it out, male versus female, subtype 1A versus 1B, people with very high viral levels, greater than uh, 10 million versus people with less than 10 million, people with uh, very little fibrosis or moderate fibrosis, and people with non-IL-28 BCC or IL-28 BCC. So all of the major divisions that tend to cause variation in response rates uh, were addressed by this combination. So this is a promising report from EASL uh, just a few months ago. Now, in people with prior null response, uh, the response rates were similarly uh, promising. So uh, this is a, uh, a powerful combination that uh, we'll have to see how it fares in later stage trials, but it's looking very promising. Now, you just heard about Cosmos and, uh, and uh, Electron from Dr. Dar, and so I just want to highlight uh, that these uh, combinations are, are exciting and that the addition of ladipasvir made uh, this combination significantly more potent uh, and was important. With prior nulls uh, having a 10% response rate to sylvosvir and ribavirin alone. So this issue of resistance. Um, I think this is an important issue, and for any HIV treater, we've all learned uh, that we want to be cautious in using these new drugs to avoid burning bridges uh, that may be durable. So this uh, bears on the life cycle of these viruses. So uh, with HIV, as you know, there's a reverse transcription step, which is error-prone, and then integration into the host genome. Uh, the cell in which this occurs is a CD4-positive lymphocyte, which is a very long-lived cell. Uh, I'm still resistant to uh, mumps because uh, I still have CD4-positive T cells that remember when I had big cheeks. And uh, of course, I'm getting bigger cheeks again as I get older, but that's a different problem. So, so the, uh, this life cycle then results in the release of viruses which have gone through an error-prone step, uh, but the viruses released from this cell are a clone of that uh, error, uh, that, that one or two errors that may have occurred during reverse transcription, um, but this cell will release a clone of virus. In contrast with hepatitis B, we have uh, the creation of CCC DNA, a durable form, an episomal form of the DNA of the virus which can cycle in this cell, so this cell can reinfect itself, and the eradication of these CCC DNA infected cells is probably the impediment to curing hepatitis B. And uh, in addition, the, uh, the error-prone replication of the reverse transcription step can result in errors. Remarkably, though, uh, monotherapy for this virus has been successful, and the reasons for that are not clear. Hepatitis C is a very different life cycle. You'll notice that the nucleus remains untouched. You'll also notice that the virus genome gets copied from positive strands to negative strands to positive strands again. And this cycle of uh, positive, negative to positive may uh, happen many, many times. In addition, every single copy of the viral genome is produced by uh, the viral polymerase. And so every virion released is potentially different from every other virion released. 
And so we don't have a coronavirus that's released from a single infected cell. We have many different viruses being released from one cell. In addition, hepatitis C levels, replication levels in a day, are about 100-fold higher for hepatitis C than for HIV. And so we have much higher levels of replication and much higher levels of diversity, uh, leading to big issues with resistance. This is illustrated in this very early trial of monotherapy with Glaprovir, uh, where people received uh, monotherapy for 14 days. And what you can see is that within three to four days of starting this monotherapy, most of the virus in the bloodstream of these people was resistant to Glaprovir. And so uh, if we use Glaprovir monotherapy, we're going to see resistance arise very rapidly. Uh, we know that some of these other drugs are more potent, but I just want to highlight that uh, when, when we have Glaprovir and Bisepravir available to us, we should not be prescribing it as monotherapy or using it in any failing regimen, because obviously this virus is going to become resistant very rapidly. Now, the other thing that complicates this is if your patient has subtype 1B or 1A, they're going to have a different pattern of resistance mutation. So you can see that the dominant mutation on the right for subtype 1A in the setting of telaprovir or bisaprovir tend to be R155 or V36 mutations. In contrast, uh, with uh, subtype 1B, it's dominated by uh, the 54 uh, uh, codon and others. And so the, the point being that when we uh, find ourselves dealing with resistance, we may be having to worry about which subtype the patient had to understand what the resistance patterns mean. So the common theme we have to recognize is that non-suppressive therapy generates resistance. So stopping rules are, are paramount. And when we are faced with a patient who has had a uh, decent drop in their viral level, but it has not achieved a stopping rule, we should uh, realize that it is not compassionate to continue that therapy. It's important to stop uh, the DAA because we will just generate high-level high resistance. Combination therapy holds promise for, uh, for, uh, for getting uh, these resistant variants under control. Uh, and I think the other thing we need to recognize is that HIV and Hep B are not curable, so uh, we have to deal with those resistance problems uh, permanently. With hepatitis C, it is both curable and it's possible that resistance may not be uh, durable. This is highlighted in this study looking at telaprovir resistance uh, by subgenotype here. Uh, and this is looking at people who have received uh, in the registration trials telaprovir uh, as part of a combination with PEG and RIBA. And as you can see, of the people who had failure, 84% of them had resistance uh, at one of the recognized resistance-associated sites in the genome. But over time, uh, these decayed. And in uh, 1A, they decayed slowly. It took uh, more than seven, uh, 16 months. In 1B, uh, resistance decayed more rapidly, uh, suggesting that the 1B subtype is less uh, uh, accommodating of these resistance Looking at this by resistance uh, site, what you can see is that the 36 codon mutations decayed more rapidly than the 155 mutations, and that the combination 36-155 double mutants uh, were the most uh, durable. And this reflects the concern that the longer we uh, continue failing therapy, the more likely we are to generate resistant variants that could uh, last for a very long time and possibly be transmitted. And of course, transmitted resistance is something that uh, we have bad dreams about with HIV. The next question that might come to your mind is, well then, given the possibility of transmitted resistance, maybe I should be testing my patients before starting therapy. Fortunately, we have some data from the uh, 
early studies of uh, tilaprovir and bisaprovir to guide us. And in these studies, uh, some people were noted to have uh, in stored specimens evidence of resistance at their baseline visit. Uh, and to summarize this slide, what was found was that they were no less responsive to tegriba with uh, tilaprovir than the people who did not have those resistance variants. So while there may be some impact, and larger studies may show a modest effect, there's not a dramatic effect uh, suggesting that we should be uh, testing people at baseline. So at this point, there's no organization uh, that I know of that recommends baseline testing for resistance uh, for uh, hepatitis, hepatitis C treatment. You can order it, of course. There's always a company out there that's uh, happy to uh, take those orders. So um, highlighting the promise uh, of this issue, though, is this study from New England Journal from last year uh, in which two uh, BAAs were used, Ciclatisvir and Asinoprovir. And these drugs were used in combination uh, in group A, uh, and when there was breakthrough, tegribo was added. In group B, the four drugs were added together, or started together. And I'm just going to highlight uh, group A to note that uh, in this group, uh, there were a number of people who had breakthrough during treatment, and one person who had relapse uh, with, uh, with resistant variants. And every uh, person who had either breakthrough or relapse had resistant variants detected. Importantly, this person who had relapse had DNS3-155K at baseline, and at relapse also had DNS5A uh, resistance mutation uh, Q30E, highlighting at least uh, a harbinger of uh, having additive resistance when we have a weak backbone, uh, and so we need to recognize that it's possible with some combinations we may need to do baseline testing, and uh, further studies will be done to make sure we know in what settings this will be necessary. Looking at that group who had either a breakthrough or relapse, uh, they then had tegriba added to the regimen, and you can see that the outcome was not good. So uh, this was a randomized trial. You'll remember Group B got tegriba, ciclatisvir, and asinoprovir from the start. The SGR rate in that group was 100%. So this group, which was randomized to receive ciclatisvir and asinoprovir, and then with failure of tegriba, were not rescued with tegriba. So the upfront use of all four active drugs was far more effective than the salvage with tegriba. Uh, this is not surprising to experienced treaters, but I think it's uh, important to recognize that that's still the case with hep C. The combination of feldaprovir and uh, a non-nuke uh, 207127, uh, this combination was used uh, with or without ribavirin. And I just showed this slide to highlight that ribavirin is still important for some of these regimens. Uh, it's also an occasion to say that ribavirin, uh, some of you may have used this in combination with interferon, and patients are not excited about ribavirin. Well, without interferon on board, ribavirin is far more tolerable. And uh, as Dr. Dar mentioned in the, um, in the Simeprovir trial, there was sub substantial numbers of adverse events. Importantly, uh, those were, uh, or I'm sorry, the, the uh, electron study. Uh, fortunately, those AEs were not severe AEs, and in general, this, this anemia associated with ribavirin is far milder uh, when combined with DAA. Now, a, a thing that's not going to go away quickly, at least not for some combinations, is the importance of the IL-28B genotype. So this genotype, which is associated with the uh, interferon lambda-3 gene, uh, has been shown to be a major predictor for responsiveness to interferon-based treatment. And then in this uh, DAA combo with or without ribavirin, you can see that IL-28B 
had a major impact. Um, this uh, also highlights uh, the importance of uh, subtype. And when we look at uh, the response by subtype, you can see that in each pair, 1A is on the left, 1B is on the right. And this is one of the reasons why this 70127 uh, drug is no longer uh, being used uh, for subtype 1A infected individuals. So coming to the end, uh, I think it's important to recognize that uh, on the left is response rates to available therapies, and we can expect that soon uh, therapies for hepatitis C are going to achieve nearly 100% response rates. However, if you look on the right, modeling uh, the current epidemic with the uh, adoption rates for treatment among people with hepatitis C, unless we treat more people, uh, we're not going to have much impact on this epidemic. Uh, and because hepatitis C disproportionately affects people with limited access to care, I think in the context of the previous talk, it's important to think about how we're going to have an impact on this epidemic uh, given uh, this picture of treatment. So uh, we now have our 47-year-old man who had genotype 1B, uh, well-compensated cirrhosis, and a prior null response to PEG-RIBA. And the question is, do you want to treat with uh, PEG-RIBA-Tilaprovir, PEG-RIBA-Bisepravir, or a DAA combination in the future? Let's see what this there we go. And if you voted before the music, no, the vote doesn't count until the music is on. So you want to wait, and I think that uh, is the right answer, uh, that uh, based on our experience, cirrhosis plus paranormal response means 10% uh, or so response rate to uh, current therapy, and so we really have to wait for uh, new therapies, unless the patient is so highly motivated, we're willing to try something that's unlikely to work. And then the next case, a 60-year-old man with HIV, uh, well-controlled genotype 3 hep C uh, with well-compensated cirrhosis. Do you want to treat now with PEG-RIBA, with PEG-RIBA-Tilaprovir, or one of the new DA combinations? And so people would like to use telaprevir, and I just uh, want to remind you, as I said, uh, the protease inhibitors that we have currently are only active against genotype 1. Uh, so the use of telaprevir with genotype 3 would not be on label or likely to be of much benefit. But PEG-RIBA is probably the right choice for a person with cirrhosis now because genotype 3 is so highly responsive uh, to, to PEG-RIBA. Uh, waiting for a DAA may be promising. However, sofosbuvir, for instance, the most promising uh, DA in some of these trials, uh, in terms of combination with ribavirin alone, uh, is not active against genotype 3. Uh, so uh, I think the best answer is the one that was least chosen. Uh, so I'm going to get a slap on the wrist uh, at the end of this, but we'll survive. So thank you, and uh, with that, I think we'll take questions. Hint, hint. Uh, I'll ask one of my own. So um, things are obviously moving very rapidly in the field. I, I, I think I persistently said I'm going to wait for the DAAs to arrive. Um, but comment on where you think things are going in terms of the spectrum of providers that are ultimately going to be taking care of these patients. A lot of people here are ID trained. Is this the 
future of Hep C treatment? I think when you talk to both uh, people who are ID treaters now of hepatitis C and also GI treaters of hepatitis C, it's recognized that the expansion for hep C treatment is likely to happen among ID trained people or HIV experience treatment treaters who are not ID trained uh, but have experience with HIV simply because the disproportionate effect on people with HIV and the experience that you have with HIV treatment uh, prepares you well for this. So uh, I think we're going to see a huge expansion in uh, people like you the next is a really, really easy question. How does ribavirin work? <laughs> uh, I, could, I could probably name off the cuff six or seven postulated mechanisms. Uh, I think one of the things that I would highlight is people thought maybe it was just a mutagen. And one of the reasons not to think that it's simply a mutagen now uh, is that, if anything, you might expect it to foster resistance. And if anything, with the DAA, uh, it tends to improve response rates and is not associated with higher levels of resistance, suggesting that mutation alone is probably not the answer. So uh, a lot of us were impressed by uh, the results that we saw at Croy. A lot of us did not go to Easel, but um, we, we know that there are a lot of compounds that are either being submitted or are about to be submitted uh, for approval. Um, what's your uh, time frame in terms of when really good all DAA uh, regimens will be and available for prescription? Uh, on label or off label? <laughs> Let's say off label. Yeah, I, I, it's worth saying that I think we'll see DAAs approved within the next 12 months. Um, I, I wouldn't try to predict what the FDA will do. A lot of them have been fast tracked, um, or not, a couple of them have been fast tracked. And I wouldn't say that we know enough to say which is superior. Um, it's likely that a nuke. Uh, at least one nuke will be approved in the next year. And given the fact that uh, there's probably going to be something that's not a nuke that will also be approved and we already have two PIs, it will be tempting to combine those off-label. Uh, but without registration trials, we really won't know how to guide our patients with regard to what side effects or drug interactions might occur with those. So I think we'll have to be cautious. But I do think within a year we'll have uh, DAAs that are newly approved. They're very unlikely to have an indication for HIV, uh, and they're unlikely to have an indication in combination with something other than PEG-RIBA. And so the labeled indication is probably going to be PEG-RIBA plus one of these new drugs, and uh, other combinations are less likely to be approved right away. So the, uh, one question was really, which combinations do you think are likely to be approved first? I think we probably don't know enough to guess about that. No. So another question is, uh, we've heard that the cost of these therapies might be quite high. Can you comment on the estimated cost of the uh, DAAs and who's going to pay for it? Well, the, the current the cost of current therapy is something like seventy thousand uh, dollars, and it's interesting because if you look at pegribatilaprevir, you're taking twelve weeks of tilaprevir. If you do pegribabisaprevir, you're taking forty-eight weeks of bisaprevir, and yet the prices are about the same. Uh, suggesting that the prices might not be directly linked to manufacturing costs, uh, which would be something of a shock. But uh, <laughs> never so, seen that before. I know. So uh, with these new agents, it's because they'll be safer, uh, and because the FDA will probably insist on that, and potentially more effective, uh, and more and so more tolerable, more effective. 
uh, I think the chance that they'll come in cheaper than current therapy is not great. Uh, so uh, I think we're going to be looking at high costs and how people are going to pay for these. Uh, I think the, the benefit is the perception, especially among people with HIV who have a very high rate of decompensation uh, and either death or requirement for liver transplant, uh, companies may see the math and say, I'd rather cure this infection than uh, deal with a liver transplant. And, you know, it's really satisfying both as a treater and potentially as an insurance provider to use the word cure. Uh, because you can just wipe this virus off the patient's problem list. Right. So I think that the inclination to pay for this is probably going to be high. And there's a lot of pressure. There's some patient groups that are becoming more active. Uh, and I, I would also encourage patients to be uh, aggressive about contacting their representatives uh, to pay for hepatitis C treatment. And speculate on when you might, we, when we might see an all DAA regimen without either PEG or ribavirin. Well, without PEG, I think we'll see that within two years. I could be wrong. I don't know, Eric, if you have any other answer than that. But I think there's a fair chance that within uh, a couple of years, we're going to see the approval of a DAA combination. Getting rid of ribavirin might take longer uh, because it appears to add something. But I can say that the use of ribavirin with these, with, without interferon really is not a big burden. Right. Um, we have a few more questions, but I think in the interest of time, we'll thank Stuart, for a great talk. Thank you. And more tomorrow for those who come. And more tomorrow.